Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 421, The Wake at Ely. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to a Shop Talk episode where Z and I discuss, God, well, we pretty much discuss everything. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Karen, Craig, and Kathleen for signing up already. Word soon reached King William's court that Harroward remained free. Even worse, the man tasked with capturing the wake, William de Warren, had barely escaped with his life. So not only was Harroward alive, his legend was growing, and his rebel base on Ely was growing as well as the English were hearing the stories and joining the cause. So the king at this point must have been apoplectic. I mean, this was not the plan. When he paid the Danes off, that was supposed to be the end of it. The local nobility were supposed to abandon the rebels and flee north or over the sea or wherever, and thus leave William free to finish off what was left of the English rebellion, probably with yet another extermination. But instead, here Harroward was, alive and fighting, and now stronger than ever. For the Normans, this entire situation was just unseemly, and it was getting on the king's last nerve. And this was a man who really didn't have many nerves to begin with. So William did what he always did when caught in a difficult situation. He completely lost his sh- the Gesta tells us that William, quote, was moved to enormous anger and goaded by deep indignation, furiously applied himself to taking the island by storm. And the Gesta claims that he was so indignant and so wrathful that he summoned his entire army, which I got to be honest, I doubt. I mean, I have no doubt he was throwing one hell of a royal temper tantrum, But the fact is that William was not a ruler at this point, so much as an extremely unpopular occupier. I mean, that's why he had knights stationed in garrisons all over England. And so I find it very hard to imagine that he'd leave the rest of the kingdom completely unsuppressed simply to deal with this rebel. He didn't even do that in Northumbria. So would he really do it for the Fens? This would be like taking your pants off to swat a fly from your face. So I just don't see it. But that being said, he did likely bring a sizable force with him. Probably knights drawn from London and any region that he felt was secure. So mostly in the south. And the Liber Eliensis does tell us that William drew fighters from nearby towns and villages. So my guess is he took his southern royal army and then he drew additional levies as he marched from London to Cambridgeshire. But if you were, say, Leofrich the Deacon, watching this force arrive in the area, well, it very well might have felt like it was his whole army, even though it wasn't. Not even close. And after a short ride, William and his army arrived at Aldrith, and that placed him less than 10 miles from Ely. He was so close to Harroward. 
But then again, those 10 miles might as well have been a thousand because they were 10 miles of fens. And like it or not, William and his army were Norman knights. So they weren't trained for this. They were trained in trotting and laying siege to tall walls and, I assume, the consumption of baguettes. They weren't trained for traversing marshes. And remember, these were the same guys who were totally stumped by the River Ouse for about three weeks. So Bear Grylls, these guys were not. And even if some of this army were unfortunate Englishmen who got drawn up, they wouldn't have been warriors, nor would they have been from the fence. They almost certainly would have just been southern farmers. So even if we imagine this army was diverse, and I should be clear here, our sources don't say that it was, but even if we imagine they were, none of them were trained for crossing a hostile swamp populated by a guerrilla army. But they did have one thing going for them. They were motivated. Likely quite a bit more motivated than the army had been back when it was up in Northumbria. Because by this point, William had changed his management style. You see, recently, he'd all but given up on using force of personality or a sense of duty to get his men to do what he wanted. And he had definitely abandoned trying to foster esprit de corps. Otherwise tried and true tactics hadn't been working all that well for him, for, I think, perfectly obvious reasons. And so Bill had turned to outright bribery. And Cambridgeshire is probably the most breathtaking example of this yet. We're told that the king went before his army, and he offered them a deal. The first person to cross the swamp and attack the rebels would be given any property on the isle that they wanted. Pinky swear. It was unconventional leadership, but it had the desired effect. These men had no doubt heard stories of the looting of Peterborough. And that treasure had to have been taken somewhere. And that was on top of whatever treasure was in the Monastery of Ely. And as we've spoken about in previous episodes, monasteries kind of functioned like banks. So the Normans were pretty sure that these rebels were absolutely swimming in treasure. Like a forgotten cache of Blackbeard mixed with a tomb of Tutankhamun. And it was just 10 swampy miles away. It was so close. And so William's army sprung into action. But this wasn't going to be an easy task. They were sitting on a half mile of relatively dry land. But from where they were at to Ely, well, that was mostly swamp. And so one group of knights got together and they began to gather construction tools and construction supplies. Timber, stone, and what the Gesta calls, quote, Heaps of all kinds of things, end quote, which I have to assume was trash because heaps of all kinds of things totally sounds like trash. Anyway, so they start to dump all of this into the swamp. And as the ducks and herons looked on, these treasure fevered men just kept piling whatever they had into the muck, first piling it deep and then trying to extend it out, presumably all the way to Ely. So they had a plan, but it was a strange one. If you're dumping logs, stones, and junk into a swamp, you're creating less of a causeway and more of a machine designed to break ankles. 
But whatever, this was the knight's bright idea to get across the 10 miles of swamp that lay between Aldrith and Ely. And slowly, they actually began to make headway. Meanwhile, behind them, back at Aldrith, another group of soldiers were headed down to the nearby river. And they also gathered logs. But they began lashing them together with crossbeams. Other members of the team began flaying sheepskins, turning them inside out, and sewing them together into airtight sacks. They then inflated the sheepskins into sheep balloons and then tied them underneath the makeshift log rafts. And by this point, I think it's pretty clear that this was less of a military operation and more like the Norman version of The Apprentice. And I guarantee that Gary Busey would have been leading the team that was just throwing junk into the swamp. And I should point out here that I am not making this story up or embellishing it. This is literally in the Gesta. Well, all of it except the Gary Busey joke. Now, Harroward naturally had spies stationed all throughout the Fens. And when they returned with word of what the king had amassed at Aldrith and what they were doing, I have to imagine that Leofrich the deacon, writing down the story of Harroward, realized that he really had a bestseller on his hands, and he began recording details as fast as he could. Because this was amazing. But the bulk of the rebels had more pressing matters on their minds. Because while it was odd that the army was creating a wily coyote road across the swamp, the fact remains that they were constructing a road towards Ely. And so some of the rebels fell to despair. But Harroward salvaged his army's morale because he had a plan. As BHP listeners, you know that any effective insurgency has local support, and Harroward's rebellion was no exception. I mean, hell, most of the people at Ely were locals, so they knew the Fens in a way that William's army didn't. And as such, they had scouts in position watching the enemy's construction efforts. And they knew what direction this army was headed and the path that they were cutting with their makeshift causeway. So the rebels, miles down that path, began gathering turf and peat. And they piled it up on raised outcrops and embankments on either side of the night's likely route. They created bulwarks and ramparts for defenders to occupy. And so, with every yard of causeway constructed, the rebels, further down the way and out of sight, were preparing ambushes. We're not told how long this went on, but given the size of the army that William had assembled, it probably wasn't overly long before they managed to throw an impressive amount of trash into the swamp and also built a small flotilla of janky river rafts, complete with sheepskin water wings. And chances are, they linked their causeway between various high points and known paths in the marsh to try and cut down their labor. But even then, you're still talking about a lot of effort here. And as they worked, the king's promise must have been running around like a hamster in their minds. Any treasure of that island was theirs for the taking, provided they were the first to breach the island and attack the rebels. 
And it's that last part that takes this whole situation and makes it sound like the kind of social experiment that they don't allow psychologists to run anymore. Like a game theory simulation run by especially psychotic economists. Because only one person could win. So while you would want to create a path across the swamp, you're not exactly incentivized to make it secure enough for everyone else to cross. Furthermore, you would only get rich if you crossed first, so you couldn't wait too long either. But at the same time, you wouldn't get anything if you tried to cross too early and got stuck in the swamp or got cut down by the defenders of the island. So if you're part of this army, when do you make a break for it? When do you try your luck? I have to imagine that that question was on the minds of every single contestant in William's twisted reality game show. But eventually, someone bolted for the makeshift causeway. Oh, f He's going to get there first. Suddenly, everyone was caught up in the medieval version of Black Friday. And their only chance now was to run faster than that guy. And if you could trip up that bastard next to you, even better. There was a lot of money on the line here, so run. In an instant, a mob of men charged onto the causeway, quote, all at once, greedy for the gold and silver and other things, not a little of which was thought to be hidden on the aisle, end quote. Yeah, the only thing they were thinking about was the riches to be found on the island. And that, it turned out, was a mistake. Because here's the thing about bridges and causeways. Engineers don't usually make them out of trash and lamb guts. And that's for good reason. Because what these chuckle f***s had created would have been unstable at the best of times. But in their greed, they had eliminated any benefit it would have had. Because suddenly, you had countless men in armor rushing across it, pushing each other aside, scrambling over each other, and chaotically scattering the piled trash and rocks in the fray. And as for those inflated corpses of lamb chop, well, forget about it. Knights aren't known for their sewing skills, and so those definitely would have popped their seams shortly after the horn blew on history's weirdest half-marathon. And remember, this wasn't a short stretch. We're talking about miles of this thing. And the further the knights went, the further they were from the safety of the main force. And the closer they got to the rebels. Do you remember the rebels? Good. I'm glad someone did, because these idiots obviously didn't. Especially the ones in the front. They had a solid lead, Ely was right in front of them, they were about to get incredibly rich, and then suddenly, the soldiers in the front were under attack by Harroward's army. The Liber Eliensis writes about this counterattack as if Harroward was out there doing the fighting entirely on his own, telling us that he attacked the knights head on and that, quote, some he struck down, others he dispatched to death in the water, end quote. And as heroic as that sounds, the Gesta, allegedly recorded by Leofrich, who was actually there, paints a very different and honestly more pathetic picture. We're told that as the multitude rushed across the makeshift pontoon and garbage road, it began to sink. And in moments, it fell apart and submerged entirely, taking the front runners with it. 
weighed down by their weapons and armor, and tangled in the mess of logs, inflatable sheep bits, and not to mention other panicked men, the knights were dragged under the mire and drowned. Later commentary in the Gesta indicates that it was around this point that the rebels popped out of their hiding places and began, quote, laying ambushes to both right and left, end quote, attacking any of the soldiers who looked like they might claw their way back out of the muck. Further back, towards the middle of the pack? Well, things weren't any better for them either. Once that bridge to nowhere began crumbling, the strain on the structure reverberated backwards and the whole thing came apart. And so, like their sprinting compatriots at the front, the runners in the middle quickly lost their footing and were swallowed by the swamp, or slain by rebel archers and fighters stationed on their ambush sites. What was happening in the front and the middle was an absolute catastrophe. But it wasn't everyone. If you've ever been in a race, you know that not everyone is in the front or the middle. There are always those who are towards the end, who know they're not going to win any prize, and they're just happy to enjoy the event. You know, the joggers. And William's army had some joggers. Which is weird, given the reason why this army was racing across the fens. And I'd really love to know what was motivating them. I mean, maybe there were a few who had some building experiences and saw what was coming and wanted to just stay towards the back and see how it went. Maybe they'd just given up on the idea of gaining riches and were hoping to look like they were trying, but really they were just trying to survive. Either way, the stragglers in the back saw this causeway collapsing and saw the rebels launching ambushes on the army from either side. And they did the smart thing. They threw down their weapons and they turned tail as behind them, the rebels shot arrows into their friends and other friends' lungs were filling with fetid water. But here's the thing. This whole army had trekked quite a ways into the swamp, and now their janky bridge had collapsed, which meant that at best, they were going to have to wade their way back to dry land. And this was a swamp, and wading through swamps is dangerous, given the suction effect of the mud. And that's if they found somewhere shallow enough to wade. There are plenty of places that were far deeper. And so, even though the joggers were in the back, and even though they turned around and dropped their weapons, and even though there was, quote, hardly anybody pursuing them, great numbers perished in the swamp and waters, end quote. Only a few out of that entire group managed to make it back to Aldrith. Because, as I told you, Bear Grylls, these guys were not. Meanwhile, back at Aldrith, William was hanging out with a few bros, watching this all play out from a safe distance. And seeing his men faltering, and then screaming for help, and then drowning, well, in response, we're told the king groaned, turned his horse, and left with what remained of his forces. And that's not a flourish by me, by the way. The Gesta literally says that he groaned before bailing on his men as they drowned. I think we know why he had to resort to bribery to get people to listen to him. Now, following this latest catastrophe, William decided that it was best to change tactics. He wouldn't try and take the island by storm anymore. He'd just try and contain the rebellion upon it. 
and so he organized a guard to attempt a blockade. But again, these were knights, not survivalists, and they couldn't even manage to cross a few miles of swamp without suffering massive casualties. And now William was going to station his knights around those very same fens? Brilliant plan. And to be clear, what happened on the path to Ely does seem to have been incredibly bad. Leo Fritsch adds that even at the time of his writing, they were still finding bodies in the fens, drowned by their own now rotting armor. And some of these bodies he even saw himself. But we still haven't gotten to the best part of this story because not everyone died. We're told that out of the entire company that rushed across the sheepy garbage overpass, one single knight managed to make it to the defenses of Ely. We're not told specifically how he got to the aisle, but the guesta describes him as cunning. And considering what was happening on the causeway, I have to imagine that he wisely recognized that crossing with everyone else was a suicide mission. And so, while everyone including the rebels, was focused on history's worst Tough Mudder race, perhaps he took a more circuitous route. Now that's only a guess, because we're not told how he did it. But if I was part of this ridiculous competition, I would hope that I'd have the foresight to do something like that. But even taking the long way around and avoiding the really terrifying causeway, there was still one small flaw with this plan. Have you spotted it? Yeah, he, like everyone else, forgot about the rebels. And by ensuring that he was the only one to make it to the island, he also ensured that he was completely alone in hostile territory. And he was quickly spotted by Harroward. But rather than killing the drenched and muddy knight, the weight captured him and he brought him within the island fortress. Because he had some questions, simple ones. Who are you, and what on earth are you idiots doing here? Having no reason to lie, the cunning knight told him that his name was Deda, and that the reason why he was here, well, so there was this competition. And Deda told him all about the king's promise, and how they were all eager to be the first so they could cash in, and, you know, how all that had gone. I assume he also told Harward and the assembled rebels how he'd managed to actually succeed where the others had failed. And the rebels were so impressed with Detta's boldness that they spared his life and invited him to stick around in camp for a few days. And why not? I mean, the guy seemed like he was probably a lot of fun. And I have to imagine that the fact that he was there because of a ridiculous contest rather than due to any personal animosity towards the rebels, well, that wouldn't hurt either. So for a couple days, they gave Detta a tour of Ely and told him stories of their victories in the field and demonstrated how formidable their defensive position was. But as they were walking around, they discovered that Detta wasn't just bold in his pursuit of riches. He was also bold in word because we're told that he informed his captors that he'd heard, quote, they were less proficient in war and less skilled in military affairs than other races, end quote. And the Gesta tells us that he brought this up with them repeatedly, like a lot. 
So basically, they're walking around Ely, and he's like, yeah, but I hear you Englishmen suck at everything. Not like us Normans. Now, to be fair, we are told he was cunning. So perhaps he was trying to goad them and gain more information on the status of the Isle. Or perhaps he was just incredibly tactless, and he couldn't help but reflexively talk shit about the English. Either way... The rebels got tired of his commentary, and so they introduced him to the companies of soldiers that manned the aisle. We're told he met large numbers of experienced veteran soldiers who were organized into groups to protect the island, which sounds to me like they were indeed working in columns. And he met many of the field commanders and witnessed how formidable they were in matters of war. And it didn't take him long to realize that he'd been lied to. These guys weren't messing around. And it had to have also been pretty intimidating that the rebels were so confident that they were giving this knight a multi-day tour. These people were not behaving like the cowardly farmers he'd been assured they were. They were behaving like Huskarls. And like Huskarls, they were treating him honorably. Eventually, they even agreed to allow him to go. All Harroward wanted in exchange for Detta's release was his solemn oath that he would report only the truth of what he witnessed on Ely, which the knight freely gave. Oh, and one other thing. Detta had been the first to cross the fens and reach the rebels, so Harroward gave him some treasure. Thus enriched, Detta was released, and he made his way back to King William. The arrival of Detta at court caused quite the stir. Everyone was congratulating him, and even the king took a break from his usual moodiness and seemed at least some version of pleased. He even asked the knight to share his story, which Detta did. He related all the details of Ely and of the warriors living there. He added critical bits of intel, including how the companies were arranged and the various ranks of the leaders. He told the king how Earls Edwin, Morcar, and a certain Tostig, along with two nobles named Ordgar and Thurkettle, were Harroward's highest-ranked commanders, and how Harroward and his men were, quote, above all the knights he had seen among the French, or in the German Empire, or at Byzantium, for valor and courage in all matters, end quote, and that none could surpass them. But as he was telling this story, there was one member of court who had been growing more and more irritated at every detail. And this praise of Harroward was the last f***ing straw. With that last comment, William de Warren flushed with rage and spat, quote, Well, it is quite evident from what you say that you are not a little deceived in that you would induce our Lord King to show kindness by extolling his enemies with false praise and arguments of this sort. Besides, are you going to set up that great scoundrel Harroward for courage and bravery? Now leave off burdening his respected majesty the King with such frivolous talk." End quote. Detta listened to this and then confidently assured the court that he hadn't been bribed and that he was bound by oath to report what he saw, which is what he was doing. And surely the king would want an accurate description of Ely. Did Warren want him to lie to his king? 
At this, William finally piped up and said that yes, he did want the truth. And he knew that Detto was an honest knight and not given to exaggeration. So the king didn't really tell de Warren to shut the hell up, but he didn't not tell de Warren to shut the hell up. And considering that he was French, I'm guessing he picked up the subtlety, especially considering that he kind of just disappears back into the background after that. But other commanders peppered Detto with questions, trying to glean any information that might give them an advantage in this conflict. How were their provisions? Were there any other nobles that he hadn't mentioned yet? How might they fare in a siege? Why were they rebelling? And to that last question, Detta actually had quite a bit to say. He says it had begun with the monks. You see, when they learned that the king intended to replace the deans and priors in all English churches with foreigners from across the channel, the monks realized that they would soon be reduced to servitude. And so, quote, gathering to themselves outlaws, the condemned, the disinherited, those who had lost their parents, and such like, they put their place and the island in something of a state of defense. There's no pressure on account of the numbers of the army over there, and they aren't oppressed by the enemy, end quote. In essence, the people were able to live free, and so they continued working towards their common goal and were able to flourish. Quote, the plowman doesn't take his hand from the plow, nor does the right hand of the reaper hesitate in reaping. The hunter doesn't neglect his hunting spears, nor does the fowler stop lying in wait for birds by the banks of the rivers and in the woods. So those on the island are well and plentifully supplied with almost all living things, end quote. Do you get what he's saying there? He's telling the king that by rebelling, the workers had lost nothing but their chains. He goes on to add that the isle itself was fertile and grew all manner of grain and other crops, and it was surrounded by abundant wildlife. Small birds, waterfowl, heron, all kinds of fish, and a variety of wild and domestic animals allowed for so much surplus that, quote, every day during the time I spent there, we made ourselves sick with the sumptuous English-style feasts in the monk's refectory. Soldier and monk always going to dinner and supper together, end quote. He goes on to speak about how they dined together with men of all rank and station and how they were incredibly well-provisioned for war as well. All of them had weapons and armor, even the monks. All of them took part in the defense of the isle, quote, for the monks, as well as the soldiers, never scorned to take their turn and go out on a military patrol. Indeed, in what I noticed there, this one thing above all others struck me as remarkable. That almost all the monks of that place are so well-versed in warfare. A thing I certainly have never heard of before, nor have I come across such anywhere else." End quote. And as for how they would fare in a siege... Detta couldn't think of anything that they might need. They seemed to have everything they could want. And by being surrounded by waters and swamps, their defenses were, quote, much stronger than any castle surrounded by walls, end quote. And then at this point, Detta's tone changed. And you get a sense that he was not pleased with how he'd been accused of lying and how he'd been peppered with questions as if they were trying to catch him out on an inconsistency. Quote, 
Nevertheless, I hope that my Lord King will not cease attacking them and that he will find that I haven't deviated from the truth and will realize that in the end, it would have been better to make peace with them than be continually attacking them and getting absolutely nowhere, end quote. Now, obviously, Leofrich the deacon couldn't have personally witnessed this testimony at Williams Court, which means we should really take the scene with a grain of salt. Leofrich would have been aware of the state of the island, and he would have known how they ate together and how they all took part in the defense of the island. Those things he would have had personal knowledge of. But this conversation with William, not so much. But as we've spoken about previously, the Gesta was supplemented by oral histories, and oral histories should not be automatically discounted. People talk, and people remember. So it's possible that something resembling this conversation really did happen within William's court. And if true, that's a bad sign. Because it means he wasn't even winning the hearts and minds of his own men at this point. Meanwhile, at Ely, Harroward was arranging teams to probe the king's blockade and find weaknesses. And perhaps even find a way to infiltrate William's camp. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast and help us keep it going, please consider becoming a member. It's cheap and it really helps us out. Thanks for listening. <laughs>